Singapore Experience 2. This is 40 Years at the Bar. I'm Paul Darling, King's Councillor 39 Essex Chambers, and in this series I'm going to be talking to friends and colleagues about experiences in the law, practices in the law, and cases that I have found of great interest. I hope you may find it interesting as well. Those of you who've heard the first podcast that Jenny and I did together um, will, I hope, enjoy us just continuing for a few minutes to carry on talking about what the future holds for international arbitration in Singapore and the wider region, because I know that people are very interested when we have a chance to hear from such a distinguished local practitioner uh, to see um to get insights as to to what's going to be doing you said Shenyi last time that we talked that there were now lawyers who effectively started their careers doing international arbitration to to to, to what extent obviously there are now departments of people that that, 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 that that do cases to what extent do they just work in Singapore if they're Singapore based or are there other venues to which arbitration venues I mean, how's it all work at work at the moment I think those those Singapore lawyers that practice in international firms or uh, in in local firms with specialist international practices, they 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 now practice not only in Singapore but and a lot of the practice still is, is still in Singapore because of SIAC. But there's there's practice in Hong Kong. Those of them who are fluent in Mandarin might even practice in in China or do arbitrations in China as co counsel. You occasionally get some arbitrations in KL or Indonesia. Apparently, um, Bali has an international arbitration center. Very popular, very, I'm sure. <laughs> I would very much like to do an arbitration in Bali. But what's interesting is that actually in Hong Kong, all the international firms are actually hiring Mandarin speakers. So you might find more and more hybridy type. Um, arbitrations, international arbitrations, where there's a combination of both uh, um, English as an international language and, and, and Mandarin. Uh, I'm not sure how, the, how that's going to turn out, but, but I, I hear that that's happening more and mm. more. Uh, not in Singapore, but more in Hong Kong and anything close to China. I, when I did my first case in, in um, Singapore in 2000, uh, the only connection to Singapore was actually there was a seat of the arbitration. The, uh, I think that the other side's claims consultant, who was the advocate, I think did live in Singapore. But apart from that, my solicitors were from Hong Kong, my clients were from Europe, um, the, the other side were Korean. It did lead, however, to um, um, one of the funniest moments I've had in arbitration, which is one of the reasons whenever I walk past City Hall in Singapore, I'm always, I always think of it. I was cross-examining this very nice Korean witness. Um, first of all, I was having a terribly hard time because the interpreter and he were plainly in league. And I would ask this, you know, question and they would discuss the answer for several minutes and then the interpreter would turn to me and see he says no um and but but it led to to this little episode which was we were both going trying to go back into the arbitration room at the same time and i said to him after you and he said no after you and this carried on for 30 seconds or so when suddenly i felt from behind a big push in my back and his colleague who was standing behind pushed me into the room so that i so that the social nicety of who should go first had been resolved so called in my favor it is um, but do do you personally practice at maxwell a lot i mean what where, where, what sort of venues do you if it's in singapore it's almost exclusively maxwell because it's just so good yeah. uh, the facilities are just just world class but uh, interesting you said that because i think that that 
Singapore is actually going. The value that Singapore has is that it's a, it's a, it's it has people that are able to interpret <clears throat> cultural differences. <clears throat> I'll give you an example. Um, the Japanese and Indonesians almost never say no. They can't. It's it's not. They they can't say no. Now, if they face a tribunal of English judges or English arbitrators, they come across as evasive. They come across as uh, trying to wiggle the way out of the question. But culturally, it's just rude of them just to give a direct no to a question, mm. and it's very hard for them to break <clears throat> out of that. It's it's easy to make them look bad in front of a bunch of Anglo-Saxon. Uh, uh, trained arbitrators. So I think that sensitivity is going to, it's going to become more important because uh, this part of the world, or at least um, Southeast Asia, is going to become more important. The disputes are going to get larger and they're going to need people who are culturally receptive to the way uh, to, to the ways people give evidence. Yeah, two, I mean, I'd say two things about that. One is I always r- remind myself that when I am appearing in any arbitration um, anywhere in the world, that I'm both a visitor and a guest, and it's important to behave accordingly. Um, secondly, that um, under the, an instinctive but but also intellectual understanding of cultural issues uh, and the way in which they impact is absolutely critical. I think now to both to do your job legitimately but also effectively, and that you need to understand that. I, I remember I in in I think it was in. Uh, Hong Kong was um, able to cross-examine a witness um, whose answers were continually, you may say that. Um, And um, happily, even though it was many years ago before the importance of this had been as widely known as it is now, I was able to understand that that did not mean that she was accepting it. She was not answering the question, but nevertheless, that was her way of uh, um, trying to be polite, but not but not accept or deny fa- head on my question. Now the arbitrator, who then in due course was a uh, became a um, world Hong Kong Hong Kong barrister, who became a world class figure and Hong Kong government figure. Um, she plainly understood what the witness meant by it. So if I'd started to try and take advantage by regarding that as an admission, not only would it not have been an admission, but it would have come across as an unfair way of dealing with it. So it would have been not just not win, it would have been lose. And that's the sort of thing you've got in mind, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and, and just to be, just to, also, I think English barristers need to be aware that English is spoken all over the world fluently, but it's not always everyone's first language. Yeah. So when when you when you cross examine someone from England or no, uh, let's say someone from the Netherlands who speaks perfect English, but then you say something like you get a series of questions, and then you okay, we come to the gorilla in the room or the <laughs> elephant in the room. And, and this guy is looking, where's the, where's we, the elephant? We, we, what, what? This is engineering. What is the, why, why are we talking about uh, flora and yeah, fauna? Yeah, no, and and they're, they're literal. So, so Or Singaporeans who deal very badly with double negatives, which English barristers seem to love. Uh, it's just, they go, wait a minute, where, no, uh, did you not say that? And, and uh, utter confusion over a person who is otherwise fluent in English. Yeah, but uh, I, think, I, think, I think that that is... All of that I completely agree with, but good advocates, and I'm not I'm afraid for these purposes, I don't include myself in that, ask very simple, book. clear questions. I've just for, for been watching an advocate in action in the Chancery Division because of a, a case that I had a, a friends of mine were involved in. And I watched this um, Chancery Junior cross-examine just simple, clear language, um, no grandstanding, put the document 
um, and did so with no double negatives, no flowery speeches, no I put it to you, no, none of that nonsense. And it was so effective to watch, you know. I think, I mean, I, I occasionally sit as an arbitrator, uh, as, uh, as you do, um, uh, from time to time. Uh, and for me, one of the many benefits of that is that you do learn from watching the advocates cross-examine and, and you can see how some things do work well and how some things work less well. I'm just wondering how 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 long it's going to take for the civil law mentality towards cross-examination to sort of permeate to the common law world because I spoke to to a civil uh, a well-known civil law uh, litigator uh, who shall remain unnamed and his position as an arbitrator was, I ignore all the cross-examination. All the witnesses are lying anyway. So I'm just going to look at the documents. Yeah, I think... Uh, yeah. It's interesting perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, mean I, think, I think that obviously in document cases, I think the trend is to... The, the documents are the things that, that can guide you. But cross-examination can also be a form of submission. You can be putting your points for... for for um, um, the purposes of your submissions and part of your forensic exercise. But but secondly, the, the other thing which I think perhaps civil law arbitrators may, may or may not regard this, but you, you people's attitude when they're being cross-examined sometimes can help you understand the underlying issue in the case. And you can you hear people talking about it and things that have seemed difficult to understand can suddenly come to life. And you can say, oh, that's why they were um, arguing about that, or that's why they were discussing that. Um, and there's nothing quite so, um, uh, respecting the civil law position, there's nothing quite so satisfying as the witness who accepts on your cross-examination that he was lying. Um, you know, we've, we've both had that, I'm sure, happen to us at, at least once or twice. But it's uh, when it does happen, it's one of those moments that you still, uh, still um, treasure. I think it's it's you know you know and that's where litigation skills help you because with with um, if you if you're used to arbitrating uh, or, or doing arbitration cross examination these days it's all chess clock so if you're a young lawyer you tend to ask very very fixed direct questions and uh, you, you know you know there's very little that goes into either badgering the witness or or, or, or trying to sort of uh, out outthink the witness or you know in, in, in inflicting some sort of psychological game on the witness which you can do in court and you can get away with in court so those skills are not necessarily fungible but if you're a litigator you could trans those skills do translate sometimes into arbitration although i do tell myself i i can get away with a lot more in court than i could get in get away with in front of three uh three arbitrators they'll, they'll tell me mr theo let's not badger the witness you can move along yes i mean i i i think the badgering the witness works less effectively than the cross-examiner often thinks but i, I do think that um that that being able to in to engage also helps the client sometimes if they think that their case the other side's case has been fully tested by a, a skillful advocate um if they happen to have one um then um i think that can often get, make people feel as if the, the process has worked and occasionally in cross-examination you know something genuinely unexpected does come out it is um, it is but i remember vividly i was when i was a young very young barrister. I was involved in a mock arbitration in France, but English common law against um, a, a French civil law team um, with a mix of arbitrators, which in 1989 was regarded as entirely revolutionary. And um, we, um, we, we we contrasted the styles. And the, one of the great doyens of the English bar then, Michael Wright, um, came across and he did some 
you know, a demonstration of brilliant cross-examination of a witness. Um, and the Batonnier of Paris um, did some equally um, effective civil law uh, techniques. Um, and, and at the end of one of the witnesses, uh, the um, given his evidence in chief, which was quite dramatic in its own self, the, the, the Batonnier said um, that he realised that everyone was not going to expect him to cross-examine but as he'd seen Mr. Wright do it, he was going to try it. And we then watched seven or eight minutes of the most brilliant cross-examination with the witness, even in a mock arbitration, almost crying at the end as they were dispatched by, uh, by, 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 the, by this brilliant cross-examination. But, uh, but, but, yeah. but, you know, Paul, I mean, you can get away. There are some things I've gotten away with in court, which I would never get away with in an arbitration. Yeah. So there's this De La Sala case where I did, where I got the witness well, to, to disclose that he had a script and we got the witnesses to disclose, or that witness to disclose, that he had been trained in a, for five days in a room with all the other witnesses covering the same ground. You know, a mock cross-examination on that very topic. They're all rehearsing, and they were rehearsing the same point over and over again. So credibility, zero. And, and that case was presided over by uh, one of our fellow benchers, Quentin, Justice Quentin Lowe, yes. uh, who, let me, who, who let me go on for about an hour just badgering the witness until I got the information I wanted. I, I could never do that in an international arbitration. So I guess, you know, you know they, they both have their strengths and weaknesses, yeah. both, both processes. I think that they are, the, the tolerance of some arbitrators is different to the tolerance of judges. And again, it's interesting to what, I mean, Quentin Lowe is a man for whom I have the profoundest respect, and I'm sure he was pleased to have let you carry on in that case because he, he got that, that, that enlisted information that was helpful to him in making his making his decision. Yeah. So 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 well well now now I guess he's uh, available to sit as an arbitrator. Has, has he retired? Uh, he's technically retired, although he still sits in the uh, uh, he still sits in the court sometimes. Yeah. But they're they're, they're entitled to take. Um, uh, arbitration cases, so great for construction cases. No, no, I, I, he, 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 he's. Um, I, I met him first many years ago, and he's, uh, you know, as you say, one of our fellow benchers, and he's a uh, um, such an effective. Op, um, um, I watched him in court one day, and I just thought he was he was absolutely breathtaking, and his judgments are, are fascinating as well. It is um, no, it's great as a judge as well because he manages to somehow control all these all us quarrelling senior counsel. Yes, well, it's yeah, it is. And and, and and who are the other judges at the moment who sit in 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 construction and arbitration work in the domestic courts? Right, right now we. I mean, it used to be Seng On and Siu Kin, uh, Lee Siu Kin and uh, and Chan Seng On because they're former engineers and architects. Yes. But but they're close to retirement age, so we don't really have someone. Uh, uh, Philip Jairatnam, who, who's now the president of the International Commercial Court, he's a former uh, construction lawyer. Yes, and a, no, and a I, good I, I, I I worked with him over the years. And a pretty good, yeah. Um, so so we've got some. We 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 don't have that depth, but uh, um, you know we're getting there with the International Court. No, but I think I think the International Court, as it were, enables you to 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 to, to fill gaps. And, and and also part of the evolution that you're talking about, but Philip, uh, Philip, I mean, I, I don't want to be vidious and you know praise individuals, but I thought when, when he was appointed, I was very, very, very delighted and impressed because he's a serious operator. Well, we've picked one of our, uh, also another bencher of the Middle Temple, uh, Jonathan Mans, yes. who sits uh, who sits in the, I think he sits more on the international court on on appeals. Yes. So, so we, we've we've poached from your Supreme Court as well. Well, um, um, uh, Jonathan Mance is a marvellous judge, 
but he's also a very, very, very nice man. When I was a pupil uh, and had not yet found a tenancy, a home, a permanent home, I was sent to see Jonathan Mance, who was then a leading commercial silk um, and busy beyond measure. And he sat me in his room for an hour, made various phone calls to suggest people that I might go and see and talk to, and gave me time in a way that is that was you know, breathtaking for anybody, let alone somebody under the pressure that he was. And whenever I see him in judicial action, I think to myself, you know, that's the way that people should behave because they are they 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 just breathtaking. And I think um, I think judges nowadays are are very very collaborative and 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 keen to keen to you know help the professions develop. I mean, your chief justice is a pretty extraordinary. Um, wonderful operator, isn't he, in the sense of the work he does, both inter- domestically and internationally? Oh, he's a fantastic judge. I mean, he's, he's, he's got a very clear mind. He's, he's internationally focused. But as a sitting judge, he's also the guy that you're the most scared of because he's the one guy, he, or he's, he's going to ask you the one question you don't want to be asked. Yeah. You know, you get, then you go, yes, Your Honour, that's, that's a very good question. And I was hoping that you would ask that. Yes. <laughs> Blatant lies, all of them. Don't describe it, just answer it. Yes, it's, uh, it, is, <laughs> it is. But some, I mean, I, I, I remember the first, having met him in Singapore and, and known um, all of the international work he was doing and the stuff he was doing developing the judicial system. Um, I remember picking, I can't remember which case it was, but it was one of the big arbitration cases. And it's reading this judgment with sort of, you know, increasing awe at his absolute, you know, clarity and brilliance, thinking, how has he had time to do this when he's doing everything else? It is... Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. We, we, I was actually talking to a Hong Kong lawyer, and we we think most of our cases don't get set aside, but, but apparently 20% of the cases get set aside, which in Singapore, we think it's a small number. But I was talking to a Hong Kong lawyer, and, they, and they're just going, wow, a lot of your cases get set aside. It's like 5% in Hong Kong. I'm not sure what it's like in, in, in the UK. Most of you have appeals as well. Well, so. of course, in the construction world, because we have our adjudication rather than arbitration as the thing, then, then the, the, there isn't the same appeal system. Whereas before adjudication came in and arbitrate, and there are all the arbitration appeals. I don't, I, it'd be interesting to see what the, the percentage is, but uh, I, I would have thought 5% sounds small and 20% sounds high. But of course, um, it is, in, an awful lot of them are dismissed on paper. Um, Insofar as you know, the application for leave to appeal, which is then dealt with on paper. But one of well, the we sa- have no appeals. We have no appeals. One of the sadnesses about that, uh, one of the sadnesses about that, of course, is that it does mean that the that the you don't get as many cases that you can rely upon from the courts on the underlying substantive issue. When I was, you know, first starting out, the court, the court here would always be deciding how does the overhead profit in the JCT form of loss and expense clause work? I know that sounds a bit wonky, but nevertheless, uh, whereas now, of course, the question the court's considering is the adjudicator's decision on the amount of the overhead enforceable at law. Now, obviously, people can still take cases on the underlying merits, and they happen sometimes. But I think here we are much more 
um, process-driven in terms of the courts than we than we would have been in the past. But there are still quite a lot of underlying cases uh, in Singapore, aren't there, on, on the underlying construction law questions? Fewer and fewer, simply because we also have that adjudication yeah. process. And, and and of course, if, if they're international projects, you have interesting points of law, but you can't appeal anything no. in Singapore because all you can do is set aside. Whereas I yeah. think under the English Arbitration Act, you, you, you can. Yeah, there's power to exclude. Uh, and obviously, there is the the filter of um, uh, obviously wrong or point of general importance. So it is a, it's a, it's a it's an easier test to state than to get through. It is you know you 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 got to convince yourself that it's a good point, and then get past a, a skeptical judge. I mean, judges are much more confident about dealing with cases on paper than ever they used to be, and which means I think that there is that sort of. Uh, that, that, that you know, an awful lot of them do hit the hit the bottom of the waste paper bin um, early on. Uh, so, so let me ask you something, yeah. Paul. Uh, so, so it, it, you know, it, um, I, I noticed that a lot of our judgments in, in Singapore, our arbitration-related judgments in Singapore, are getting uh, uh, worldwide attention and getting cited. So, what's it like in the UK? I mean, do you guys actually have the occasion to actually argue or cite some of the cases oh, yes. coming out from our courts? Oh, very much so. I mean, the, 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 if you're if you're doing an arbitra- a point of uh, arbitration procedure or, or uh, application under the Act or a supervisory case, um, then very often there'll be a Singapore case that is capable of being um, A, helping and B, being referred to. And you often get that also. You get that even more um, in international arbitration and, and, and in dispute boards, that the decisions of the Singapore courts on, on procedure, for example, about the enforceability of adjudicate of DAB decisions, um, that they're very, they're very often referred to. And of course, they, 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 they have, for the reasons you've given, a great deal of credibility um, because of their uh, high quality mix of judge trying the case. Um, if you've got a combination of a, Australian judge, uh, um, English judge, Chinese judge, w- w- then, it, then, then it means that your, your decision, it, it isn't as if it's decided by a single person uh, with a narrow um, ambit. It, 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 it's something which has a, a genuine breadth. And I think with arbitration, people are very interested in all courts, in the mood. And you get the mood very often, brilliantly, from the, the, the Singapore cases. Oh, that's interesting. Is it is a much smaller world than 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 thirty years ago? Than yeah, well, started. no, it is. It is. It is. Well, I think I think it's partly the internet in the sense of you know when when people were writing books and and researching cases, you'd have to go to the library to find the latest case, um, and hope you might pick up an article where someone had mentioned a case, um, and you remember all those cases, for example, that around the world about the time at large with acts of prevention, yeah. people would sort of somehow have the little secret file where they put the transcript of the case from Australia that they'd come across. Whereas now you just go to the screen, bang, bang, bang. Oh, there's seven cases on time at large. Um, so I think, I think that's the impact of it. But it's also, let's be candid about it, um, quality. And I, this is not a jurisdictional thing per se, but there are the, but the quality of some of the judgments that are produced both in the UK and and internationally and in, in in jurisdictions, you know, there's some it's it's some pretty impressive stuff, and I think that um, that's of uh, uh, and what it does is gives you helps you have ideas and then material to support the support the ideas as you put them forward. It also means that because their views are supported by such distinguished international jurists that um, 
that uh, the judge who gets to the, their question very early on perhaps might wait another minute before before they dive in. Uh, well, that's. Uh, and, and have you done much in Australia? No, mm. no. I mean, I, I've I, I've been sort of um, instructing counsel in Australia, but uh, uh, it's it's a bit different. They're little. I think the 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 law is not as developed when it comes to the setting aside cases because they don't do as many international cases as. Uh, let's say the UK does yeah. or Singapore does or Hong Kong. They, they tend to be very Australia, Australia focused. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little bit different. So really Singapore is the place to be in at least this time zone. No, so I, 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 I've um, um, not done myself um, much, the, the odd thing connected to Australia. But so, uh, as you say, um, it is that the, the, the systems are different. But it's interesting, there are in the construct in the pure narrow underlying construction context, it is interesting how many interesting cases do come out of the Australian courts. Um, most of them um, domestic, but nevertheless, re- for, for construction wonks like me, raising interesting points. Yeah, we, we had this. We had a case on pure economic loss once, uh, and I think that we had to look at cases from Australia, from Canada, from the UK because I think UK you were you were constrained by DNF estates and things like that. So we we sort of uh, decided that we could we could allow uh, pure economic loss to be claimed in a construction case. Uh, it didn't have to be dangerous. It didn't have to be uh, commercial. Uh, it didn't have to be commercial property like Australia or dangerous like Canada or. Uh, impermissible like the UK. Yeah. So we kind of went our own way, but with our own reasoning. But you see, that's quite interesting because talking about DNF, I mean, I remember DNF estates vividly. Um, Donald Keating was for weights um, and um, uh, Richard Fernihuff was brought in to represent DNF estates. It was then joined to a case called DOE and Bates and John Uff was brought in on behalf of the DOE. And what you then had was a perception in the English courts that Anne's and London Borough of Merton had caused stuff to get out of control, that, 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 that everyone could sue anyone for anything, and that they had to find some control mechanism. Um, and I think um, the gossip at the time was that the reason that um, John Uff had been instructed on behalf of the DOE was to get one more heavyweight um, uh, into the room to help the House of Lords, as they then were, decide where the line should be drawn. But the but the trouble with common law is that the the, the line then gets drawn in specific places, very often with the place determined by how you've had to piece your way round the problem. And so you've got the you've got the decision being affected by the particular facts of the case, the advocate in front of you, um, and um, the previous authorities that you are trying to reconcile or avoid pulling apart. And that's why when you have the same exercise done in, but with different facts in several jurisdictions, it then gives, for example, Singapore, the opportunity to look at them all and say, no, we've seen all of this. This is the way we're going to do it. So effectively, it's almost an appeal from all of the other decisions yeah. around the world. And- well, I tried, to get the, I tried to get the court recently to, to, um, to follow the Supreme Court on, uh, decision on, on, in Cavendish. Uh, on, on liquidated damages. Unfortunately, they decided to reaffirm Dunlop pneumatic and uh, uh, improve the scaffolding and the foundations of Dunlop pneumatic. Yeah, well, that's, so we that, went- that's again very interesting because I, um, I've i done over the years lots of cases. I'm going to be doing a separate podcast about liquidated damages um, and indeed um, um, have done some... some um, given some advice in Singapore from time to time about liquidated damages. And I think it's very interesting. Uh, I, I, Cavendish was a 
uh, an odd case in my view. Um, I'm, um, whether it's appropriate to to relax the way they did or not is an interesting question. But I, I was, when I saw that decision and was then subsequently thinking about it in the Singapore context, uh, I don't want to sound uh, as if I had a crystal ball, but I, I did think the Singapore courts would not be as attracted to it as um, as the, but the, there's also some other, you, you, I think in Singapore, if I remember rightly, there were some quite sensible cases under the old, under the Dunlop, which produced decisions that, 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 that everyone thought were sensible and right. There was some controversy. There, there, there was some uncertainty for a while because some judges kind of almost veered towards, uh, they didn't hew to Cavendish, but they kind of veered towards Cavendish. So the Court of Appeal had the final opportunity. So I, I was just grateful that I still won the case yeah. because I managed to prove it was a pre- genuine pre-estimate. But Cavendish would have made it, if I succeeded in Cavendish, would have made it a lot easier. <laughs> but our, our court went all around the world. It was a global survey of all the cases on liquidated damages, like you said, for, for like, like DNF estates. So I guess Singapore's had the benefit of doing that because we we pull from every jurisdiction and it makes law it makes law a lot more interesting well, that's what, but that's, difficult. That, that's just what I was about to say and finish on that one of the lovely things about all this is that it gives us the professional satisfaction of being involved in um a number of cases that 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 and seeing a number of cases where you can see the evolution across the world uh, and you can sit there thinking well I may have lost in England, but I would have won in Singapore. Um, but having done lots of cases on 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 the case damages and penalties, I have to say that the fact that there are different outcomes in different places is a great joy to me because it means that one can look look at them all through the filter of uh, of the historic way in which every jurisdiction has decided it. So aren't we lucky? Um, and it's very good to have spoken to you. I promise everyone that we're only going to do two, and I'm very, very grateful to Shinyi for having joined me for a second podcast, us having had so much fun doing the first one. Hope thank you, really- you for having me back. No, thank you. We're d- d- delighted to have you back. And as I say, uh, I look forward to seeing you in Singapore and soon.